0: Father, we love you, we thank you that because of Jesus Christ's intervention on our behalf to die for our sins and rise again from the dead, that he took our sin upon himself if we belong to to you through faith in him and then granted us his righteousness. And so we can pray with confidence in you knowing that we belong to you, God. We know that Dwight belongs to you. We know that Rosella belongs to you and Richard belongs to you. And for that, we are deeply comforted. Lord, we don't belittle the, the real suffering that we experience in this life. In fact, a hurricane reminds us of the consequences of the fall. But Lord, we do pray, though, for those who uh, were uh, victims of this massive hurricane, especially those around Fort Myers. We pray for the recovery process. We pray for uh, the believers to be strengthened and encouraged and to be a light for you during this time. Give them opportunities to share the gospel clearly. Lord, we pray for um, a clear path forward for uh, Dwight. And Lord, we pray for a wisdom for Dwight and Karen and the doctors. And we pray for the treatment to go well and for there to be as little side effects as possible. God, we thank you for the reminders from the reading of your word and singing together this morning that we come here because we love you as you have first loved us, and we come here because we desire to continue submitting to what it is you have for us from your word through your Holy Spirit teaching us and guiding us. We pray toward that end this morning, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Yanomamu kahika ihede Eu também falo un poco de português, pero definitivamente hablo español mejor. And English is without a doubt my most educated language. It's the language in which I don't feel tethered to a child's vocabulary. You shouldn't be impressed that I can speak some of several languages, since I learned them conversationally when I was a kid depending on the environment you grew up in, or some of you have a similar experience to mine, it just kind of happens naturally that you learn to speak another language. In many parts of the world, people speak two or three, sometimes more languages just to be able to get around. And that's what it would have been like for people in first century Palestine. They would have spoken several different languages to get around. But they would have had to learn the languages, whether they learned them as children or as adults, which is significantly harder. But that's not what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Jesus at Pentecost. They instantaneously speak other languages. Let's read the event together in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. The moral of the story is, you probably aren't truly filled with the Spirit unless you do strange things that people mistake for being drunk at 9 (laughs) a.m. But seriously, what is it that we should take away from this as believers today? This is not an event, in our view, that we can replicate, nor should we. So I believe Luke's intention is to give an accurate historical account for sure, but also portray a vivid description so that you can immerse yourself in the event to walk away also astonished, but not amazed only, but also to respond in worship and with resolve. We should respond with praise to God, and we should respond with commitment to relying on the Spirit's work. First, let's allow Luke to immerse us in the sights and sounds of the Spirit's coming in verses one through four. What's so typical of Luke in his historical narrative, he does here again, placing the episode in a clear setting. It takes place at Pentecost and while they were all together in one place. Pentecost, which means 50th in Greek, was one of the three great feasts celebrated in Jerusalem according to God's command. They had the Feast of Tabernacles, they had Passover, and they had Pentecost. Pentecost came just 50 days after the first Sabbath after Passover and was known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits Harvest. It isn't perfectly clear if there's an intended significance for the Spirit's coming at this festival, Pentecost. Part of the problem comes in scholarly disagreement concerning the meaning of the feast from the Old Testament to the first century. If there is connection in the feast to the giving of the Mosaic covenant in Sinai, that's what some people think, there's a connection to the giving of the law, then the significance might be the correlation of confirming the new covenant in Christ by the coming of the Spirit. But if the connection is more toward the offering of first fruits of the harvest, then the significance could be the Holy Spirit's coming as a kind of first fruits of the believer's inheritance. But since Luke doesn't stress the meaning, only the timing, perhaps we shouldn't speculate too much either. What is significant, to be sure, and is quite obvious here, is that it was a busy festival in Jerusalem with lots of people still gathered from every place we find out, almost, where Jews are in diaspora, where they are spread out, and it helps launch the church in a big way from the very beginning. We're not surprised either to find the disciples all together, because we know that they've been obediently waiting, as they were told. We studied this now three weeks ago. Spending much time in prayer... And doing a little planning in accordance with Scripture. And that planning was, you may recall, that they decided to replace Judas to round out the 12, and the Lord chose by lot Matthias. The place that that they're meeting here is probably then the same upper room of a house where they had been meeting while they waited. And we also find out that they were just sitting, not doing anything in particular to conjure the Spirit's coming, just sitting and waiting praying, and planning. Now, to help the reader understand what uniquely took place on this day, Luke describes the audible and visible signs that accompanied this supernatural event. There could be no question that this was the fulfillment of Christ's promise of the Spirit's coming. So first there came a sound from heaven, and not that it was a wind, But it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. Perhaps some of you have been indoors in your house or somewhere else when there's a great windstorm, perhaps even a a tornado nearby, and that sound makes you quickly rush to the safe spot. (laughs) But instead of the sound being outside, the sound was inside and without wind. But it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. Luke doesn't make much of this here but in the New Testament wind is associated with the Holy Spirit both in his name numa which means spirit breath wind and in the way that he works you may recall Jesus description to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he's telling Nicodemus that you must be born again of the spirit and he says in verse 8 the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit moves like a wind that we cannot see. Secondly, there was a visible symbol. Something like tongues of fire appeared and distributed among them. Again, not that it was fire, but that was the best description that they could come up with. And so Luke then records it in the way that he heard it from these eyewitnesses. Maybe these looked somewhat like the flame of a candle or a lantern, something like a tongue of fire. What would you call that, right? The little flickering flame from a candle or a lantern, you might call it a tongue. That was the best description that they could come up with. And this visible phenomenon rested on each one of them, no doubt to show that the Holy Spirit was indeed being distributed to every disciple present each individual member of the believing community. It seems like this visible aspect was something that only the group gathered in the room at the time saw, because later the reaction of the crowds is only to the languages, not to anything that they see. Luke doesn't, again, doesn't press this, but fire in the Old Testament was associated sometimes not just with judgment, it is frequently associated with judgment, but in the Old Testament, fire was also sometimes associated with the presence of God. Remember God speaking to Moses from a burning bush, but that didn't burn up. Remember the pillar of fire leading the people of Israel as they then, after exiting from the captivity, they're being led toward the promised land and there's a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. The presence of God And so, probably these things are symbolic of the presence of God with them. In verse 4, then, there's another audible sign. But this time, it's not only as confirmation to Christ's followers, but this sign is also for drawing attention to the message. It would lead to the opportunity for evangelism. The Spirit miraculously gave them utterance in other languages that the speaker had not known and seems to himself or herself possibly still not actually know. If we compare to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and I think that rather than assuming those are different, the gift is different than what happens here, that they're very similar, and so I think of them as complementary helping our understanding, then it's quite possible The Holy Spirit is guiding the syllables that come out of their mouths in a language that they do not speak. That's pretty crazy. We know here that tongues in verse 4, glossi in Greek, is intended to mean languages because in the context, it's plainly connected to verses 6 and 8, which both use dialectos, which means language. And then the word tongues is used again in verse 11 to mean the same thing. Just let me show you that again, that again. Look in your text with your Bible in front of you at verse 6, which after verse 4 describes this as tongues, verse 6 says that we hear each of them speaking in his own language. Verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. See how those are spoken of exactly equivalently. This is speaking of known languages, at least here in this context for sure. Can you imagine praising God in a language that you do not know, such that the hearer who speaks the dialect coming out of your mouth has to tell you, in this case in in Aramaic or Greek, a common language, what it is that you are saying? Missionaries go now and spend anywhere from six months for a trade language, which tends to be easier because the vocabulary is very limited, anywhere from six months to five years to become proficient in a language. And some, sometimes missionaries will have to admit that they, they just can never conquer it well enough to communicate well and teach in a, in a language, another language. But the disciples here instantaneously speak languages that they do not know. This supernatural event of speaking languages unknown to the speaker, which the believers referred to as tongues, would be listed in other New Testament writings among the gifts of the Spirit as well. The event here definitely indicates that what the disciples speak are known languages understood by the native speakers. And while it would take more time than we have today... I think that I personally believe that that's the most, that makes the most sense of explaining the spiritual gift as well, which is really only done, the spiritual gift is mentioned other places, but it's really only explained in Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, where he's actually instructing believers there, how they ought to and ought not to practice tongues in the assembly of the believers. I think the best way to understand them is to see these events as complementary and to try to make sense of it that way. That should make for a fun discussion for your small group or family gathering tonight or this week. Look especially at 1 Corinthians 14 and see what you think. Before we leave these first four verses, it's critical to note that the purpose for the tongue's phenomenon is that it draws attention so that Peter can then proclaim the gospel, which he then does in a common language. Secondly, though, it is evidence that these disciples are given the unique empowerment in the Spirit to launch the witnessing that Jesus promised in Acts 1.8. And then later, two more times in Acts, Acts 10.46 and Acts 19.6, there, it is also as evidence to the believers that other groups are united with them in Christ. First is evidence that the first one that comes up again, Acts 10, 46, is evidence that the Gentiles are receiving the same spirit by believing in Jesus. And so it's evidence to the believers that this group, these Gentiles, the household of Cornelius, is also a part unified in the same body of Christ. And then the next time, much later, when... The apostle Paul is teaching in Ephesus. He encounters some of John the Baptist's followers who have not yet even heard that they they need to believe exclusively in Christ and and then receive the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul explains it to them, they do believe and they receive the Spirit. And then they also speak in tongues as evidence. And there were some 12 of them, the text says, that this other group also had received the Holy Spirit. So those, like here, those other two times, it is also evidence that these people are being brought in to the the common community of faith. All other times that new people are saved, in the book of Acts, there is no mention at all of them speaking in tongues. Okay, so after the setting and the sights and the sounds of the Spirit's coming... On all the believers in power, Luke turns his attention to the reaction from the crowds. We see that the crowds are baffled by the language's phenomenon, I'm calling it. Verse 5 says that many devout Jews, meaning those among the Jews who are doing their best to follow God's prescriptions in the law of Moses, and in this case, especially the male leaders of the households would have journeyed from all over the known world at the time, to be in Jerusalem for this festival. Some of them probably staying over from Passover to to be there for Pentecost. Some might return, re, leave and return if they lived closer, but many would have needed to stay if it's only 50 days later. Luke will also tell us where they are all from in verses 9 through 11, certainly representing in his mind the whole known world, or as he says, every nation under heaven. In verse 6, the crowd gathers and they're bewildered. Their bewilderment begins because they're hearing everyone speak. They're hearing all these disciples speak each one in some native tongue. I'm picturing them gathering around and, and hearing someone speaking their native tongue. And they're moving around in this crowd of lots of people trying to find the person who is proclaiming the mighty works of God in their native language. And all these people are just Galileans. What is going on? By the way, in verse 6, some people assume here that the, the crowd is drawn by the first sound, that, um, that really loud sound like a mighty rushing wind, which might be correct. But also based on the context of everything that, that follows up, including Peter's preaching Um, to an extremely large crowd and the extremely large numbers of people who believe at the end of this day, some 3,000, they must have moved to responding to the gospel. So they must have moved to some place where there would have been space for a huge crowd. So most of us think that from the process of hearing this in the upper room, they go out and people are hearing them and they make their way to the outer courts of the temple. And more and more people are gathering around them. You can just imagine. But the people are bewildered. They're confused because they're greeted by hearing these Galileans, verse 7, speak the native languages where they're from, and not speaking in Aramaic or Greek, which most of them would have had in common to some degree. Both verses 6 and 8 emphasize, again, that the numerous languages being spoken are are not these common ones, but rather the native tongues, the local languages spoken in the places where these people were born. As we said from verse 4, this is a miracle of speech and not one of hearing. The crowd's reaction emphasizes the fact that they knew these were simple men and women who were from Galilee. And there could be no logical explanation whatsoever for them speaking these various languages. Then in verses 9 through 11, Luke gives us all the peoples and places represented by these languages who are present in Jerusalem and who hear this miracle and no doubt also get to hear Peter preach. The list covers much of the first century Roman world. Of course, particularly areas where there would have been Jewish communities. I have a map for you just so you can see The list, as it makes its way in verses 9 through 11, it makes its way sort of from east to west, mixing people and places. There appears to be a list of four from from out east, headed by Parthia, because it was the greatest power that still remained in that region and hadn't fallen to Roman rule. So the two largest powers at this point are Parthia and Rome, and they clash for centuries. So that first four part of the list is Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. See what I'm saying about that grouping of four in the east? And then we move toward the center, and there the list seemed to be in pairs. The middle section, two places at a time, sort of snaking east to west and north to south. You hear them they are now now it goes to places judea and cappadocia pontus and asia you see them there in that what is modern day turkey also in that same region we are told of phrygia and pamphylia then moving south in that middle section to egypt and parts of libya belonging to cyrene and visitors from Rome. And then as Rome is mentioned, here we have a heading all the way out east, of course, of the, of the greatest power in this time, which is Rome. And, and from Rome, there would have been probably a large contingent of Jews. And there, it sounds like the way that it said, both Jews and proselytes, those Jews in Rome must have been particularly active in proselytizing, which is bringing in Gentiles into Judaism. And in order for them to be in, in the, what they believed in the covenant community of God, they had to fully become Jews. They would have had to, the men would have had to become circumcised and and follow the laws that God had given to his people. And so then finally, almost kind of in a, the last two being a little different, the island of Crete there in the middle of of the Mediterranean and Arabians from furthest south in the um, Arabian Peninsula. Now, all of these Jews in diaspora, that's the word we use for people's dispersed, Jews dispersed to live in these various locales, and also proselytes to Judaism, they had all come, likely, as we said, for both Passover and Pentecost. All of these people are hearing the disciples speak in their own tongues, native to the region they're from. What they hear in their own language is the spirit empowered believers telling of the mighty works of God or the deeds that God has, had done. Undoubtedly, what they are saying in particular is the way in which God has intervened mightily among us through the Lord Jesus Christ, which we will see that such is exactly what Peter will go on to explain in depth in the first Christian sermon preached at Pentecost. I heard a preacher mention once that Even uh, believers can sometimes stand before other believers with the word of God and give a very tidy Jewish homily. (laughs) And the, the point the preacher was making is that without Christ, it's not Christian. And so undoubtedly, as they begin proclaiming here the mighty works of God, in particular, they're proclaiming the mighty works of God through Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead. Whom you intended, Peter says, to put to death, God raised from the dead. We learn in verses 12 and 13 that everyone has the natural reaction of being both amazed and confused. But then what follows are two different reactions to that astonishment and perplexity. Some respond with sincere questioning. What does this mean? These are the ones who know that this miracle is not easily explained away, so they seek some kind of answer. What could this mean? But others respond with a mockery that that has to make up some kind of explanation that really doesn't even provide an answer, but allows them to shrug it off as drunkenness. The explanation of drunkenness is, is ludicrous for various reasons. As Peter will explain in the next verses, it's relatively early in the morning, First of all, it also was considered improper and obnoxious and sinful in Jewish Palestine to be drunk. So these 120 disciples being accused at 9 a.m. of being drunk, extremely unlikely, right? That's pretty ludicrous. Most predominantly, though, being drunk gives no explanation whatsoever for the miracle of these Galileans suddenly speaking various languages. I don't know how many of you in a past uh, life, and I know you don't brag about it now, but maybe you used to have a history of drinking. Did any of you in a drunken stupor suddenly speak a language you didn't know? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, there will always be mockers. Even in our day, in spite of all claims to the intellectual reasonableness of scoffing at the existence of God and the revelation from God in Jesus Christ and in his word. And although their scoffing shames many people into submission and causes others to doubt, such mockery remains quite ludicrous indeed. When God has given you eyes of faith to see, you realize the more you study, the more you seek to understand that God is the only reasonable explanation. You also begin to see, even as amazing as it is to your sight, that the, the, the perfect mediator, the God-man Jesus Christ, is the only reasonable means for us to be made right with God and by God's grace and nothing of your own. You stand astonished, but you realize that this had to be the way. The perfect wisdom of God just floors you. And the more you seek to understand God and his revelation of himself with the theological richness with which he reveals himself, it only begins to make more and more sense to you. It is ludicrous to offer any other explanation. And yet, you know, even as the Bible describes, the blindness of our sinful nature. We reject God because we have rebelled against God and we are blind to the obvious. What is the explanation then as Luke makes clear? the Holy Spirit had come in power at Pentecost to fulfill the promise that the Lord Jesus had made. This miracle of speaking other languages was a confirmation to the followers of Jesus, and it was a sign to grab the attention of these outsiders so that they might listen to the gospel of the mighty work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may remember me telling you that One of the trickiest things for us in Acts is to try to figure out what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. And so you can tell that my conclusion this morning is that the majority of this here is is descriptive. So I, I was working very hard on this to try to figure out what are things that we can and should apply. First, perhaps the most obvious thing that we should not miss in this text and can apply to ourselves is that. This is clear fulfillment of Christ's promise to send the Helper, God the Holy Spirit, to be with and in God's people, all true followers of Christ who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved and they receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. How seriously do we take the Spirit's work in us? It is the Spirit who regenerates It is the Spirit who seals us in Christ. It is the Spirit who gives us assurance of our standing in Christ, who convicts us of sin. It is the Spirit of God who gives gifts for the building of Christ's church, and is the Spirit who guides us, and clearly the Spirit who empowers us. So we should ask ourselves this morning, are we leaning on the work of the Spirit in us? to shape us into the image of Christ, and to use us to build up the church, and to use us to testify to the resurrected Lord Jesus. I'm convicted again that we lack courage only when we trust in ourselves instead of in the Lord's work through the Spirit that he has given us. Secondly, we must do the hard work of seeking to rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. In comparing this episode of all the disciples speaking in tongues with Paul's explanation of how the gift of tongues should and should not be used in the regular assembly of believers in 1 Corinthians 12-14. to So the gift is either the same as this experience, speaking languages that require an interpreter for everyone present who is a non-native speaker of the tongue that's being spoken, or it must be something else, like an ecstatic language that no one understands except God and the interpreter. In the process of determining which one we think is correct, we must account for the difficulties of our own position and admit those, as well as humbly consider that there may be others with the same goal as we have who are reaching a different conclusion. However, still others, a great many in our day, unfortunately, are perpetuating the exact abuses that the Apostle Paul seeks to correct in his letter to the Corinthian church. Finally, in our gospel proclamation, we see in this text, there will be mockers. There are always have been and there always will be those who scoff at God. But God himself will separate the saved from the scoffing. God himself, as Jesus says, will separate the wheat from the weeds, the good fish from the bad fish, the sheep from the goats. It is our calling in Christ to sow the seed, To cast the net of the gospel, to go out and beckon them to come in to the feast of the kingdom, proclaiming the mighty works of God in all things and especially in the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone that we can reach. And we leave the harvesting up to our sovereign Lord. Lord, give us eyes to see those we can already reach with the gospel. Lord, give us faith to believe that we have the Holy Spirit and that he works through us. And Lord, give us hearts to go and to send out from among us those who will expand the reach of the gospel to people who have little or no exposure to the truth of Jesus' salvation offered to mankind. Father, we love you and we trust you. In your name, amen.